And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Olivia Campbell to the program today. Olivia is a respected journalist, having written for outlets such as The Guardian, The Washington Post, New York Magazine, among others. Today we'll be talking about her debut book, Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine, which looks at three women who blazed the trail for others to attend medical schools and earn MD degrees in the 19th century America and Britain. I'd also like to add a note that the internet weather didn't do our connection any favors, so the audio is a bit dicey at times, but it is a very interesting conversation, which I hope that you'll stick around for. Olivia, the women you follow in your book are from 19th century America and Great Britain, but you do point out that women have played key roles in medicine and healing for pretty much all of recorded history. Women have been healers, healer priestesses, nuns were taking care of people, people in wars, just kind of local healthcare workers. So if you look throughout all of civilization, you're going to see women delivering health care. It's there, whether we've lost it to history or we've kind of glossed over it because, you know, the history of women hasn't really been thought to be recorded as, as often as men. We, we didn't really record women's professions, you know, way back in the day with the pre-medieval and medieval era. There's also the case that a whole family would have been involved in a profession in the medieval era and before that. So let's say you have a surgeon who's a man, maybe his wife is participating, she's helping out. If he's out on a call tending a patient, then she's at home and maybe a patient comes and she takes care of them there. Their kids are learning, their kids are helping, they're learning how to make medicines and, and deliver medicines. So it's kind of just a different style of delivering healthcare. And then as you get further on a little bit, you have wives who are kind of expected to make medicines as part of their household. You, you would make, you know how to make foods and you would know how to make medicines as a good housewife. At that point is when the church started establishing universities. So they decided that medicine was something that needed education Medicine was going to be something official. It was going to be a real profession to have a license, which, you know, on one hand, it's great. It's really good that you kind of had proof that this person you're going to see has some sort of training, has some experience in what they're doing. But it also really discounted all of the, you know, actual experience that women had as lay healers in their communities. Women had been passing down for generations how, how to deal with herbs, how to grow them, how to, you know, make the medicines when exactly the right time to harvest them was. And to suddenly demand that medicine was something you had to learn from a book was kind of a slap in the face for them. Also, the fact that women weren't allowed in universities. So suddenly, uh, it's only men are allowed to be doctors because only the only people that can call themselves doctors are the ones who went to university and women aren't allowed there. So not only are they cut out from education, they're also, the church decided that wasn't enough to just kind of exclude them, that they were also decided they were kind of have a campaign where they declared any lay women healers witches. And so, you know, they killed hundreds of thousands of women at the stake just because they decided that women shouldn't be healers, but women couldn't deliver health care anymore. But those women who were healers, folk healers, root doctors, granny women, some call them in Appalachia, were very important to the American experiment and the frontier as well, though. Yes, women healers were a huge part of the community. We're a very trusted member of the community. They would have been delivering babies. They knew what they were doing. They knew their stuff. And to kind of have these men come in and say, oh, no, you don't know what you're doing. It really it messed everything up, in my opinion. And then even in the 19th century, when some women were pursuing medical educations and such, 
some thought it was just a nefarious plan in order to make abortions available to women. Right. So Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to get an MD in the U.S., she had a terrible time even finding a a place to live, a place to practice medicine, because at the time, pretty much any woman that was calling herself a doctor did not have a degree, but she was practicing as an abortionist. So there was this kind of, you know, a negative connotation to the very title of woman doctor. So Elizabeth didn't really want to practice abortion. She didn't really believe in that. And she didn't want to be associated with that. So she kind of had to you know, build her reputation and kind of convince people that she was a legitimate doctor, that she had her earned her MD, that she was licensed to practice, and they didn't need to worry that she was, you know, doing something nefarious. Yeah, her moral rectitude was a large part of her desire in becoming a doctor. She was very into uh, morality. She's one of the more odd people, I thought, <laughs> in the book. She never married. She was very kind of weird about men. So Elizabeth adopted a daughter, and she it was more like a housekeeper. It, it was a very weird relationship. So, I mean, it wasn't uncommon at the time for, you know, your older kids to be doing a lot of housework. But this girl didn't even call Elizabeth mom. It, it was a bit weird. So Blackwell's just kind of a, a weird person to me a little bit. But, you know, she's the first. She's this, the ultimate pioneer in women MDs in the U.S., She very much believed in preventative medicine, teaching people about their bodies and about how to keep things clean. In her later years, she's very much into morality and eugenics and some things. Very conservative. Although on the continent, medical schools had been established for quite some time. In America, when was the shift from apprenticeship to medical school model? When did that take place? So we get the first medical schools in the U.S. and Philadelphia in the 1700s. I'm going to say Benjamin Franklin was one of the founders. It didn't really take a lot of education to become a doctor in the U.S. at this time. That's one of the most surprising things I discovered in my research. So we've only had medical schools in the U.S. at this time for a little less than 100 years. And the year that Elizabeth Blackwell started at college was the year that the American Medical Association was established. And that was the same year that they kind of decided that medical school was going to be a little bit longer than just a few months. There was not a lot involved uh, at the time. So Elizabeth Blackwell was one of the the first classes of students who went through, you know, a few years rather than a few months of school. So it's really like a a very simple undergraduate kind of situation. (laughs) And it was nowhere near as rigorous as the European model was. No, definitely not. Schools in the UK and in France and Switzerland, other Germany, it was like four years of school. And, you know, you did intense in-person clinical training at a hospital. Most of the schools in the UK were actually attached to a hospital. They were kind of built out from the hospital itself. Uh, So you had a hospital right there to go get your training done. But yeah, there was lots of more exams, lots more training lots more experience, just period, in order to get a degree in the UK. And that's where ultimately a lot of these women ended up going to places in mainland Europe mostly, but also in the UK from America to get additional training because they kind of recognized that the US was not rigorous enough for them to really perform their duties well. Now, while the Enlightenment and the introduction of the scientific method were very important to medicine, still in the mid-19th century, empiricism wasn't as prominent as it should have been in the practice and study of it. This is a really fascinating time to be researching and learning about medicine. To me, Blackwell was about 10 years before the other two women I talk about. So she is really that old school of medicine. They're still doing you know, a little bit of 
bloodletting. There's still some leeches going on. Still not quite sure their approach. It's very much about having a good bedside manner and they're using a lot of toxic things as medicines. Mercury and antimony and... Right. So then a decade later, when you have Elizabeth Garrett and Sophie Dexplate coming in in the UK, these are kind of the new class of true scientific doctors is, is the way I saw it. Medicine is really becoming a science at that point. It's sort of the, the end of the story that I'm telling. It's when antiseptic practices, when germ theory is just being born. And, you know, it's kind of, they're kind of finally realizing what medicine is really going to take to actually help people instead of maybe hurrying them along on their demise. You know, people would get more sick going to the hospital than they would staying at home at this time because of all the germs packed together. You mentioned Elizabeth Blackwell. She is not someone who grew up with a voracious scientific mind. How did she develop her interest in medicine? So Blackwell was kind of grossed out by the idea when it was first suggested to her that she practiced medicine. She kind of helped her, her dad a little bit when he was sick. Her dad died when she was a teenager. So she talks a little bit about what the doctor did for him. And that was really her only really in-person brush with medicine. It's not something she's talks about being interested in at that time at all. She's working as a teacher and that's pretty much all that a woman could do at this time. If you weren't maybe a working class woman, if you wanted an actual profession, you were a teacher or you were a writer and that was kind of pretty much it. So she goes to visit one of her neighbors in Ohio who is dying. She has some sort of gynecological cancer. We're not exactly sure what it was, but the neighbor tells Elizabeth, it's so much worse to see my doctor. Like my doctor is making me even more uncomfortable and if I just didn't even go see him at all, would have been so much better if I could have seen a woman doctor, if women were allowed to be doctors. She says, Elizabeth, you should be the one to be the first. You should go get a medical degree and be the first woman doctor. And Elizabeth's response is just absolutely not. No way. That's gross. And honestly, at the time, medicine was really gross. But she definitely embodies that stereotype of women, you know, being too delicate, maybe not up for, <laughs> up for all that medicine entails at the time, all the nastiness involves. Over a few weeks and months, she kind of plants a little seed, this idea, and it grows. And she thinks, you know what? I, I think I am going to do this. I think I can get over my revulsion, and I think that I can be the first. She loved the idea of being a pioneer, of really showing the world what women could do, really pushing the envelope on showing what women could do and women's rights in general. That was her big deal, is that she wanted to prove that women could be doctors. She could have chosen any profession, honestly. I, I think medicine just happened to be what was recommended to her. I think she could have excelled at anything, really. But her point was to be a woman doing a profession that was overwhelmingly male. And while personally she was a bit squeamish on it, that canard of women being too squeamish to undertake surgery and medicine obviously ignores the fact nurses, midwives, and even women who lived in farms who had to butcher animals every day for their family sustenance. Almost everyone told Elizabeth that, oh, she should just go be a nurse. That's the woman's job. Don't bother being a doctor. It's going to be too hard of a road. Just go be an assistant to a doctor. That's what women are for. They're to assist men. What she learned about herself, the more that she explored anatomy and physiology and was dissecting things, she found it absolutely beautiful. Like she was worried that it was going to be disgusting to her, but this is true of almost all these women. There's several comments that they make throughout their lives. They all expected dissecting to be disgusting. They thought it was going to be gross, but it was actually fascinating to them. It was really the intricacies of the body were just beautiful to them. And I love that observation. What did her mother think of her aspirations? 
Uh, Black Mouse Mother, I'm not sure that she, uh, I don't know that she really cared that much. Her sister was a little bit, wasn't sure about it. I think her sister wrote to her and said that she wasn't like empathetic enough. Like she didn't think she'd be a very good like caregiver as a doctor. (laughs) So there's like some letters back and forth where her sister's like, are you sure you're going to be good at this? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. (laughs) But honestly, I think she needed that sort of detachment to be a good doctor, really. Like you don't want to be really close with your patients so that maybe that helped her out in the end now elizabeth garrett her mother threw a fit oh my gosh she went into like a months-long depressive episode she like made herself ill from crying too much because lizzie said she wanted to be a doctor like this was just the end of the world for her um there's stories from other women at the, in this time One of them was like, the mother said she would rather see her daughter in an insane asylum than in a medical school. And the student people were being disowned by their family. And then they had to go and find a job to pay for medical school if they really wanted to go. Uh, So this was, it wasn't just society that was telling them, you know, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. It was their families also, which was even worse because without that support, you know, to do this thing that's going against societies, going against the grain they really needed their family support at this time and to have that loss was was even harder. For Marie, the uh, the woman that the Blackwells worked with at their hospital in New York, Marie wrote to her father to tell him that she had just earned her medical degree and her father wrote back and was like, well, if you were my son, I would be so proud of you. I'd be so excited, but you're my daughter. So all I can do is weep. So that kind of expresses perfectly that what women were dealing with at this time. Like if they were a man doing this, that would be great. Everyone would think it was awesome, but they were a woman and that was just the worst thing. Even all pioneering women of the time weren't supportive of Elizabeth's efforts. I mean, her neighbor, who later became one of the pioneers of women's literature in America, wasn't behind it. Yes, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe was like, no, 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 no. What are you doing? <laughs> this is a bad idea. You're, you know, why would you do this to yourself? They, they heard it from everyone. It wasn't just the men. And honestly, sometimes there were men that were supporting that. There were men who were like, you know what? Why are these other men being nasty about this? We should be supporting you. I really thought that was important to include in the book is these women who they approached either for like for fundraising or just for like basic support emotionally, socially for their efforts. And these women were like, oh no, this is, this is a bad idea. I would never go see a woman doctor. Women aren't smart enough. Like this really internalized sexism was rampant. Same with the, you know, the mothers that were, aghast that their daughters were going to do this. Their mothers, they didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to upend the status quo of this is woman's place. This is what women do. They stay at home. They have kids, you know, and then their daughters get married off, so on and so forth. So just the idea that these women were very much them against the world at the time. It was tough enough for women to find even places in college and universities to study generally, let alone a medical school at the time in America. Oberlin College was open to women, and there were maybe a couple others that women could go to. But by and large, none of the ones that admitted women were medical schools or had any kind of medical school attached to them. So Elizabeth Blackwell, is everywhere she applied was all men. There were no women studying there at the time. And after she went to Geneva College, they closed their doors to women. They were like, well, this was an experiment, not a precedent. We're done. We don't like the attention that the medical establishment gave us. It was very negative, but there was too many reporters here and too much attention. We're going to just close it down and no more women can come to this school. So just because, you know, one of them had gotten through and managed to get in didn't mean that there was going to be more of them. And that seemed to be a kind of a common practice when one woman 
extraordinary woman would kind of work her way through and actually achieve something, then they would shut the door right behind her. Exactly. Same for Lizzie Garrett. So she managed to kind of piece together her training in the UK. She got a few classes in at a school that was attached to a hospital by being a trainee nurse. And sort of, she did this a couple times at different hospitals. She would take one class and then she'd be like, hey, can I take another class? And like the more conspicuous she got in her asking for more and more classes, the more often she would get kicked out because they were like, oh no, you can't be a regular student. We're not going to allow that. You can be a trainee nurse and maybe take a class. But you know, once she asked for too much, she would get kicked out. And so eventually she had like some private training for the people she'd met at these hospitals. They'd come to her house and give her classes. So she pieced together all of the credits that she needed to get licensure through the Society of Apothecaries. So she wasn't an MD yet, but she was licensed to practice medicine legally in the UK. And as soon as she was licensed through the apothecaries, they too said, oh, absolutely not. No more. We're not doing this. So all these other women had heard about what she'd done. And they're like writing to her for asking for help and wanting to be a trainee at her medical practice and so forth. But the door was closed to them. They could not repeat what she just did because the apothecary said, no, no more, no more women. Now, I was amazed by how often the decision as to whether to allow a woman to study at a particular medical school was left up to the tender sensibilities and fragile egos of the male faculty and students. One of the letters, I think, responding to Elizabeth Blackwell's application to attend school, the administrator was like, why would we furnish you with a stick with which to beat us with? Like, why would we give you the tools you need to to do this profession to be better, maybe, than we are at this? We're not going to do that. So Blackwell got admitted to Geneva College as kind of a joke because the administrators didn't want to be the ones to say no to a woman when they got her application. So they decided to let the student body decide. And they took it up with the students. They said, hey, we got this application from a woman. What do you think? Should we let her in? Well, the students thought it was a joke. The students thought that a neighboring college was pulling their leg and just had submitted this fake application as a woman. So they're like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. She can come be a student. And then I hear it a few weeks later as a real woman appearing in their classroom and they're like, oh no. But once Elizabeth got into a school, it, it was okay. She had a few incidents where they were being weird about her coming to an anatomy class. They, you know, maybe threw some papers at her, but she shut it down really fast and was like, no, I'm going to be a student just like all the other students here. I'm going to take all the same classes. You're not going to give me any guff about being a woman. She was much older than most of the students, so that she was kind of an older sister type for them, which was, this is totally the exact opposite experience that Sophia Jex Blake had in Scotland. She was fighting constantly with the staff, the administrators, the professors, the students, almost all of them. There were a few professors, sort of like an adjacent college. So it was like an associated college that they could take classes in. And most of the professors in that little school loved Sophia and all the other women that she brought with her to be students. But for the most part, the main professors at the college were very vocally against women studying medicine, against Sophia herself. It was just a nightmare for Sophia. And it wasn't like the field of medical study was held in high esteem in academia, it attracted a lot of wastrels and fail sons. That was the other really surprising thing for me uh, in researching this, that medicine was kind of what you did if you didn't succeed in being a lawyer or uh, maybe a, a clergyman or something. Like it, it was kind of like a last-ditch profession for men who you know, were looking for a, a decent job. So that's very different than, than how we see it now, for sure. So this is another case where it's kind of like when these women are coming in is when 
that's kind of turning the corner a little bit. So there had to be like a dean of students or something for one of these schools. I think it was one of the schools that Lizzie went to for a while, but there had to be someone who basically like kept them in check because they would rather be drinking and playing pool, uh, you know, at the bar than going to class. And classes were very rowdy. These were some rough men at the time. So it wasn't exactly the greatest place for a woman to be in the first place, just because of the nature of these men. But the fact that they, they really went there and there was multiple riots that they created for just for the fact that women appeared in their classroom, you know, they were throwing trash and mud at people. And just the fact these women were trying to go to medical school, just trying to get an education. We've talked about Lizzie Garrett prior, but she was truly inspired by Dr. Blackwell and her efforts in America for her to go to school in, in England and, and Britain. So Elizabeth Blackwell is really the reason that the other two women I talk about became doctors in the first place. It's it's pretty incredible, the connections. For Lizzie, it is is very much a direct connection. So Lizzie, only way that she hears about women becoming doctors is she is reading this feminist magazine that's just started publishing uh, in the UK, in London. And she's reading one of the first articles in this magazine is a biography of Elizabeth Blackwell written by Elizabeth's sister and talking about all that Elizabeth has accomplished in in medicine and in her career so far in the the nine years that she's had her MD. And so Lizzie, this kind of piques her interest. She starts talking to her dad about it. She's like, oh, this is interesting. What do you think about women being doctors? So then she hears a few months later that Elizabeth Blackwell is going to be doing a tour of the UK, talking to women about having a job in medicine, about just kind of having a profession in general, just trying to inspire women to want more from their lives, to do more, how great it feels to be giving back to her community by having a profession, by feeling useful instead of sitting around at home as a housewife. So Lizzie is very excited and she knows a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing. So she manages to get a meeting with Blackwell. She goes to the lecture, loves lecture. She actually goes to multiple lectures because she's really into it. And then she gets a meeting with Elizabeth Blackwell and Blackwell kind of assumed that Lizzie already wanted to be a doctor. And that's why she asked to meet with her. So she kind of was talking to her as if she's already decided that that's what she wants to do. And at this point, she, you know, she just is feeling that she wants a profession. She wants something to do a more meaningful life than taking care of her parents' house at the moment. So that's what really plants the seed for Lizzie is Blackwell sort of assuming her interest in medicine. So she goes off and I think she's in a friend's wedding or something. And then she comes back home and she's like, you know what, I'm going to become a doctor. And then of course her mother goes into, you know, months long depression. Her father really does come around. Her father is not sure at first. He's really worried that she's going to have a really hard time. He's not like, all the way against it, but just worried that it's going to be a really rough life for her. Um, and eventually, she really turns him around. He, he's one of her biggest supporters. I mean, he had to be her financial supporter for her to afford all this private lessons and things that she had to do for her classes. Um, so yeah, her, her father is footing the bills here, but he eventually was very, very proud of her, very much in support of her professional goals. Yeah, he seemed almost more indignant than she did at the, the refusal she got along the way. Exactly. Yeah. He's, the more he tagged along on her exploits, the more he was like, oh my gosh, the way you're being treated is just ridiculous. You know, this is what what is wrong with these people? He was the one who was bawling in the front row when she got married. He's more sad, you know, upset than anybody else. He's a really cool character. I liked him. 
And then Sophia, she actually knows Lizzie. They kind of hang out together. They go to some science lectures together, but she is inspired by Elizabeth Blackwell in a sort of roundabout way. So her goal in life is to establish a school for women, a school for girls. She had a rough time in school growing up. She was kicked out of multiple schools because she was very energetic, really intelligent, really kind of maybe talking back to teachers, that kind of thing. She's she's kind of too much for, for most people. So she wants to make a school where the too much girls can feel at home, basically. So she travels to America to kind of see the few colleges here that have men and women attending. She goes to Oberlin, she goes to a couple other places, and she talks to some women professors about, you know, how to have a co-ed school, about educating women in general. So one of her stops is in Boston at the Women's Medical College and the Women's Hospital. One of Elizabeth Blackwell's protégés, Marie, has gone to Boston shortly after she helped establish the school in New York. She went to Boston to kind of repeat what the Blackwells did in New York. She has a, a school and a hospital. Sophia works with them there to kind of see how that training works. And that's what inspires her. So in a roundabout way, Blackwell has inspired so many of these other women, but definitely Lizzie and Sophia for sure. A lot of the women here think about going to the continent to study medicine, but they really want to study in their home countries. In your research, did you find out who were the first women to earn medical degrees in Europe? There are a lot of women that went to Switzerland, to Germany, to France to get MDs. I believe that Mary Putnam Jacoby and Elizabeth Garrett were among the first people in Paris to get the MDs. Because Lizzie didn't have her MD yet, she had a license. She wa- she really wanted that actual MD. So she traveled to Paris over a series of a few months to earn her MD there. So she and, and Mary were in Paris. There's a few other women from the U.S., I believe, that went to Switzerland uh, that had to go to Zurich. A lot of women were traveling and women were accepted there. What's fascinating to me is how ironic it was that these women were pushed to mainland Europe, to France, Germany, Switzerland. And that's where medicine was really innovating at this time. Like there's so much going on in medicine there. That, that's where you want to be. Like It's a hotbed. <laughs> of innovation. So they were bringing back all these new practices, these new treatments and instruments to the U.S. and the U.K. because the you know, sexism was pushing there, could really advance medicine in their home countries. But it was a big argument for within the women's medical movement whether you know they should keep pushing in the U.S. and U.K. to try and get into the regular schools, or if they should just kind of relent and go over to Paris, go to Switzerland, it would be easier. But Sophia really strongly felt that that wasn't fair for the women that couldn't afford it to expect women to go to, to France. And she felt like that was giving up, essentially, like that, you know what, we should we should be able to do this here. We shouldn't be giving up and you know tucking our tails and, and heading over to the continent. And then there was concern about the catch-22 of setting up medical schools that were just for women the fact that they may not be considered serious in their way. So the end goal for the movement was always full acceptance into all regular established medical schools, all universities, because that's where the money was, right? That's, they had the professors, they had the facilities, they had the training, they had the hospitals, they, they had the instruments, they had, they had the museums, they had everything. They, that's where all the good stuff was to get a high quality training, right? That was where you got the respect was from the degree. So almost all of these women did not want to establish women's medical schools because they thought they would be inferior. And in a lot of cases, 
they, they were because they were set up in kind of a hurry and they didn't have the, the money that they needed for a really great education. They did the best they could with what they had um, and they tried to be rigorous, but and a lot of times they weren't meeting those standards. Finally came to a point where they realized for a few years, you know, the US and the UK are not ready for women to be in medical school yet. So if there's any hope of them getting a medical degree. We're going to have to establish women's medical schools. And they really did it grudgingly because they didn't want to, but they realized that it was going to be the only way for a little while. Eventually, once society was ready, once they realized that there's no reason for women not to be doctors, not to be allowed into universities, that then they could you know, safely close them down. Olivia Campbell is the author of Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine, which is published by Park Row. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.